Let's turn now to this chapter that we read, the 13th chapter of Acts, and we'll read there at verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Through this man. <clears throat> Who is this man? Tonight, friends, I think we need to meet this man. Let us call him Paul's Christ. Here is Paul, the well-known Pharisee who has undergone a huge change. After he met our risen Lord on the Damascus Road, he witnessed there in Damascus, and then for three years he meditated in the wilderness, searching the scriptures in Arabia and uh, convincing himself of the full glory of the Redeemer. And so equipped he came back and was used mightily in Antioch, in north of Damascus. And then um, the time came when the Christians in Antioch thought, sought to spread the word and obey the command of Christ to go into all the world, and they set aside Paul, or Saul as he was then, and Barnabas, and off they went to Cyprus, as you know, and then to the mainland of Turkey, and then back home, and then set out eventually reaching Europe, and of course eventually Rome. And what was it that drove this amazing man Paul on his ministry through much suffering and opposition to persevere and build the church of God? Well, it's because of his vision and grasp of the Messiah. <clears throat> when we speak about Christ, we're not giving the name of Jesus, we're giving the title of Jesus. It's a title like president or king or prime minister. It's a, the title of the office that Jesus has. And Paul knew from his study of the scriptures what this extraordinary and unique title meant as far as the Lord Jesus was concerned. And so that's the, that's the Christ that we want to hear from Paul. We might call it Paul's Christology, his doctrine of Christ, so that you may know your Christ. Who is your Christ? How will you describe him? How long would it take you to tell an inquirer, well, who is this Jesus that you trust in? Have you got much to say? Paul could speak through all these epistles of the wonders of the graces of Jesus, his Lord and Master. 
So we'll look at this in three ways tonight. We'll look at the identity of his Christ. Then we will look at the chastity of his Christ. And then at the divinity of his Christ. We'll look at the identity of his Christ. You know something of what an identity or your identity is? You know that when you go to the airport and fly out, you have to give some identity that proves that you are the person that has booked the flight and purchased the ticket. You have to have some identification. There's a story told of, I think it was Prince King Henry VIII when he was a boy, and Prince Henry in the palace in London, that he was adventurous and he would slip out of the palace and go about London and about the people, the poor people there. And one day when he was found a friend and played with him all day, he said at the end, Hey, how about you going to the palace and I'll go to your home and we can spend a night in each other's houses. And so what they did was they changed their clothes. The prince put on the rags of his friend and he arrayed the boy in princely attire. Sorry, yes, and then the boy approached the gates and the guards there recognised the dress, so he slipped through, he went into the palace, he was ushered through into the banqueting hall and there he sat down at this glittering banquet beside the queen and the king and then suddenly the queen looked at this boy this is not our boy despite the outward appearance and identity the true identity was not right. He was exposed. He could not identify himself as the prince, as the rightful boy to sit beside the king and the queen. And so, friends, when the Lord Jesus came into this world, he lived among us and even said that they didn't know who it was that was with them. There standeth one among you whom you know not. They couldn't decipher, distinguish him from anybody else. So what evidence do we have about the identity of Paul's Christ? Who did he discover? And then ask yourself, have you discovered? Have you discovered Paul's Christ? Is you the same Christ as him? Three things we could think of here. First of all, he was raised by God. <clears throat> he was raised up by God. It says in verse 22 that when David, uh, when Paul, was, when, when the King Saul was dismissed, that God found a better man to take his place and he identified David he said I found David 
a man after mine own heart, who will do all my will. Of course, David was only a foreshadowing of the mighty Messiah, anointed one who was to come. And so these words apply in their fullness as God identifying Jesus because he was raised up. He was raised up of God. We can look at this Jesus, and Paul explains this, as to what evidence we have for this. Why was he raised up at the resurrection? He was raised up as evidence that he could defeat death, that he had the power over death and hell. God raised him from the dead. He said, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it again. All of you are going to face the hour of your death sooner or later, aren't you? How prepared are you for that moment? How will you be equipped for the waters and river of death? You will not be prepared unless you can identify Jesus as the one who defeated death. says in Corinthians, as by Adam all men died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Are you, is he your Christ? Because you know that on that day, when you pass through death, you will be raised. You will be given that life everlasting or to take another verse in Romans we have more evidence of who Paul's Christ is as the one who raised up if you look at Romans 14 and at verse 9 we find these words written <clears throat> for this end Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You see how much Paul thinks of this Christ? He's trusting him and has identified him as the one who is Lord of death and of life. Just as Paul as John records in Revelation, where Christ says, I am he that is alive and was dead, and am alive again and have the keys of death and of hell. Now, friends, you, like Paul, must grasp and hold on to that truth so that where you can face death with assurance, with the mighty conviction, I'm now in the hands of him. Excuse me, who has the power of death and of life. Excuse me. He was raised by God. 
That's why, again, Paul, who um, continually refers to his master and identifies him, says uh, again in Philippians 3, and we look at that verse 2, and verse 10, where we read these words. But I rejoice... Not got the chapter right. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him. That I may identify him. Recognize him. As the one who has the power of resurrection, of new life. He's the one who has defeated the enemy of death. Not only is he raised by God, but he is recognized by God. And here we're looking at them, the accounts that we have, let's say, in Matthew, at his baptism, where you know that um, John the Baptist was there baptizing many and... As Jesus rose from the waters, God recognized him. And he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We find this in Hebrews. Again, God's recognition of who Jesus is. Right at the beginning, in the first chapter, the writer is at pains to tell us, this is who I'm talking about. This is what God thinks and and how he describes this one, this incomparable one. He says, and to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? till I make your enemies your footstool. He is being distinguished from all the mighty inhabitants of glory. These powerful angels cannot be compared and have not been identified as the one who sits at his right hand. Who would dare to sit there on that throne at the right hand of the Father? Ah, only one. Paul's Christ. Thirdly, friends, this identity of Jesus can be made clear by John himself. We mentioned John. He is rated, you could say. He is qualified or uh, estimated by John the Baptist. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose his shoes. What is he saying here? He's saying how incomparably worthy he is. John was the greatest of the prophets. There was none like John the Baptist 
And here is this one who is super eminent above everyone else, but now, he says, but compare me with this one who is coming. He is so worthy that I can't even approach his feet or loose his shoes. That's Paul's estimate, too, of the glorious identity of his Christ. So let's look then at the chastity of this Christ. We're talking here about what we usually call his holiness. What is it about his chastity? Why is it so important that Jesus is without sin and is so pure? Why did he have to be like this? First of all, friends, because... He had to qualify to save a soiled and sinful and fallen race. And here's Paul's estimate. As he's preaching to these people, these Jews in Antioch, he says, first of all, there was no cause of death. The Jews in Jerusalem tried every way they could They sifted and combed through his record and the testimony about him and eventually they had to bring up a trumped-up charge because Paul states it like this. There was no cause, no reason, no evidence to accuse him. There was no cause of death in him. Death, of course, as you know, is the payment for sin. And so there was no cause of death because there was no sin. He was blameless in his words, blameless in his steps, blameless in his work. And he was blameless, and this made him exceptional. He stood apart from everyone else. Here he was living in a sea of sin and unbelief and rebellion and hypocrisy and he walked through all of this without a single stain. Can you see how exceptional this was? You see how this set him apart in purity Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sin. Do you need a Christ like that? Do you need someone like this where you can find refuge even from your own sinful heart? You say, I want this Christ. That's the Christ that I need. I need Paul's Christ. No one else will do. And there was no cause of death because he was entitled to life. You know how it says in the law, him that doeth these things shall live. And here's the one who has done these things. He's kept the law perfectly, he's entitled to life. If these Jews had not conspired to have him killed, there would be no death. He would have gone on and on. He'd still be alive today in that same nature with which he came, because there was no cause of death in him. Isn't that amazing? He was entitled to live. 
Even God himself could not say that he should die. There was no cause of death. Then there was no, so this, there was no contradiction of the prophecies. Paul says, I've studied all of this. I've looked at this man in close detail. I've read the Old Testament accounts that predicted him. And I find that each one of these predictions is fulfilled exactly in Jesus of Nazareth. Not just approximate, but to the letter. How could that be done? How did Jesus and one do this? Achieve every detail of everything in the Old Testament. It's because, friends, he was being led by the Spirit, even though in the limitations of his human humiliation, he didn't put a foot wrong, because daily he was committed to the guiding and direction and submission of the Holy Spirit of God. And so, in that way, he was able to say, I do always those things that please my Father in heaven. What a testimony, what a record, what a claim. And so there was no contradiction of the prophecies. I think it's in verse 29. <clears throat> it says uh, that now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, it wasn't only that he fulfilled everything, but those who sought to manipulate and, uh, and accuse him, they were compelled despite themselves to fulfill all that was written. What does that tell you? It tells you that beforehand all of this was exactly planned from the eternal counsels of God. Here was a man who was fulfilling the purpose, the eternal purpose of God to justify sinners and so he was justified before everyone. And thirdly, friends, the chastity of Christ, the holy sinlessness of Christ is seen in that there was no corruption of his body, of his corpse, of that body of Christ. You might say, well, surely it's enough that his soul, his humanity was perfect, but you know this, it was even put in place and requirement and a necessary requirement that his body should not decay. It was predicted. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So that when he laid down his life, the normal natural course of decay that we know begins with everybody did not occur in his case. Why? Because it would be morally dereliction for to allow that perfect and pure body to be corrupted by the curse of sin. And so that body rose in the same purity with which 
it was laid down. Why do you think that was necessary? Is that a necessary detail? Yes, friends, because it's a testimony to what that, that he is going to raise you up with a purified body. He is the first fruits of those that sleep. And so it's no use him rising with a corrupt body. He has to implement this process of perfect purification for your resurrection body when it is united to Christ. It will be united to him in his purity. And so this is the chastity of Christ. And thirdly, friends, there is the divinity of Paul's Christ. So far, is Paul's Christ your Christ? You know, I'm hearing people, they, as I go around and go down to the borders there, I meet people, I've met one person in particular who was attending our service and who said, oh yes, I believe in Jesus I believe he's the son of God, but he's not God. I said, what? He's not God? Do you have a Christ who is not God? Isn't this the very foundation of our faith, that we have a God who came and suffered for us on the cross? Yes, we cannot separate Christ from God. And so we look here at the divinity Paul's Christ was a divine Christ. How do we know? Well, Paul quotes this. Mine only son, he says in verse 33. My only son. What does he mean by this? Well, he means that he is unique. But you say, are we not all called the sons of God? Can we not claim... What John says in chapter 1, verse 18, To those that receive him, to them gives he the right to become the sons of God. You see the difference? We become sons of God by adoption. But this one is the eternal son of God. There's a parallel here with Abraham. Remember how God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Do you remember how he had this heartbreaking, painful duty to take Isaac? No, it wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. So much so that when God called him, he said, Take he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. You see, Isaac had a status that Ishmael didn't have. He was the only unique son of Abraham who was the son, as Paul says in Galatians, the son of promise. In other words, he was the son <clears throat> who was in the covenant. And so you can only become a son of God, a joint heir with Christ, because Christ is the legitimate heir, the only son of promise. He is unique. There's no one to compare with Paul's Christ. 
my only son. Then he says, my begotten son. The divinity of Christ is here. You know, you can go through the New Testament and see many references to Jesus as the Son of God. But how many references will say that he is God? Not very many. Not very many. You hear Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Yes. It says in the psalm, thy throne, O God, is from everlasting But not many. So how are we sure, convinced that Jesus is God? Well, because he is the begotten son. In other words, he must be of the same nature as God. You can't, a cow can't give birth to a a lamb. A lion can't give birth to a tiger. No, because they always produce the kind of their own nature. And since Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, then he must, he cannot do anything else but be a partaker of that divine nature. In other words, he must be God. And since there cannot be two gods... He must be one with the Father, as he said himself. That's the Christ whom Paul trusts and worships as his Messiah. That's the Christ that he offers to these Jews. That's the Christ that they complained and objected to and refused, as predicted. Behold and wonder and perish. Because although they had Christ portrayed to them, they would not believe. They would not trust their eternity to this Christ. Have you trusted, friends? Have you identified this Christ? Have you admitted to his perfection and sinlessness? Have you realized that no other one will do for you? Not only is he perfect, but he is God himself. Isn't this extraordinary? God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself by the cross. They are of the same nature. Not only is the only son, the begotten son, but lastly, he is the holy son. And of course, we have been looking at that in the chastity that is mentioned, but it says, Paul, Paul identifies this in verse 35, where he quotes the scriptures, Thou wilt not allow thine Holy One to see corruption. Why is that term chosen there? That term is chosen because it identifies him as a refuge from a sinful world, and from a sinful heart, which you and I have. It identifies him as having the power available to make you holy, to cleanse you from your sin, to implant in you a principle of holy godliness. And this is what he does. 
If any blind be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things are become new. How many here tonight can say, I once was a sinner, but now I'm saved. Oh, you say, yes, I've still got that sin, but there is planted in me a new life which does not sin. This is what John said when he says, He that is born of God sinneth not. Paul himself, again, going back to Paul, he said, It's not I who sin, but sin that dwelleth in me. Are you a two? Are you a dual person? Are there two Donalds or Marys here tonight? In you, the sinless one, and the sinful one this body of death that we carry but Christ because he is holy plants a holy nature in each one of us have we identified Paul's Christ is there any other to compare with him oh you may have the Pope's Christ you may have um, the Christ of the Mormon or whoever but Surely this is the one alone worthy of your obedience, of your faith. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank thee for that Paul spelt out so clearly, this is my Christ, this is my Lord, this is my God. Grant us to have a clear grasp in these days when people are denying who Jesus is and refuse to grant him the fullness of his perfection, his divinity, his holiness. Oh, may we not be shaming him or contradicting that one that we confess, but may our lives demonstrate that we're among his holy ones that we are being changed from this vile image into his glorious image. Grant it, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. To close our service, singing in Psalm 61 at verse 5. For thou the vows that I did make, O Lord my God, didst hear. Thou hast given me the heritage of those thy name that fear, a life prolonged for many days. Thou to the king shalt give, like many generations, be the years which he shall live. He in God's presence his abode for evermore shall have. O do thou truth and mercy both prepare, that may him save. And so on to the end of the psalm from verse 5 to the tune Salzburg. For thou the vows that I did make. For the
now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit rest upon you, now and ever.